everyone, my name is Vishy Rao. And I am the Teddy Trinkus. And welcome to Rambling About Egyptian History. Today we'll be covering a doozy of a topic, the Greco-Roman period of Egyptian history. Egypt's 30th dynasty was coming under heavy fire from the accumulated Persian Empire, but still retained some sovereignty well into the 340s BC. This changed when Persian King Artaxerxes III defeated Nectanebo II and gained control over Egypt. From this point forward, Egypt functioned as a typical Persian satrapy. Various Persian satraps or governors ruled as de facto pharaohs during the 31st dynasty of Egyptian history. All right, Alexander invaded Egypt in 332 BC, which was a little over 10 years after Persia had regained control over the country. He was welcomed as a liberator by the Egyptians, who had never truly accepted the hegemony of the Persians. He further ingratiated himself with his new Egyptian subjects by visiting the Oracle of Zeus Ammon, a shrine that honored Greek and Egyptian divinities. Next, Alexander decided that merchant ships would get pretty bored unless he built a great new port city. He chose the site of Rakotis on Lake Canopus to be his new magnum opus and named it Alexandria, which I'm sure was just a coincidence. After Alexander kicked the bucket in Babylon, a series of wars were fought among his squabbling successors until a general named Ptolemy secured his rule over Egypt by diverting Alexander's funeral procession to Egypt and having the great buried there. The resulting Ptolemaic kingdom was a fascinating mix of Egyptian traditions and Greek culture. The monarchs, while ethnically Macedonian, ruled in the style of the pharaohs and adopted traditions such as sibling marriages. Every time a new king was to be crowned, he would choose a piece of papyrus out of a hat that would decide his regal name. All 14 of these kings, however, picked out the name Ptolemy, leading some people to wonder if all the pieces of paper had that name all along. Ptolemy 2.0 was just as adept as his father and fought wars in Syria and Cush to shore up his kingdom. As is often the case in the world, the third time was the charm for the Ptolemies, as Ptolemy III oversaw the kingdom at its greatest extent. Yeah, so I'm sure Teddy would agree here that during this time, there seems to be a lot of appreciation for Egyptian culture. For sure. Rulers seem, deemed it necessary to assimilate Egyptian com customs into their rule to gain legitimacy. Definitely. But things weren't all good, though, and they started to fall apart with Ptolemy IV who sure regretted suing for peace in the Syrian desert after the Seleucids dealt his suzerainty a shocking blow in a decisive campaign. The young Ptolemy V, his successor, may not have been old enough to ride on most roller coasters, but he was old enough to form a humiliating alliance with Rome that constricted Egyptian sovereignty. The Rosetta Stone was also commissioned during the reign of this kinglet, and while it may have served as a great marketing tool for language learning programs, it did absolutely nothing to impede the fall of his Ptolemaic dynasty. The Ptolemies were fast learning that Rome was the biggest kid on their block, and submitted accordingly. Ptolemy VIII even went so far as to propose marriage to Cornelia Africana, daughter of Roman war hero Scipio Africanus and mother of the Gracchi brothers. A further series of Ptolemies bungled away the last remaining shreds of power and prestige that their kingdom had once owned until Cleopatra VII ascended to the throne in 51 BC. Yeah, so Cleopatra actually ruled with her younger brother Ptolemy XIII, whom she also married. The marriage was nominal, however, and soon enough Cleopatra was stripped of all authority by Ptolemy's band of bravos and advisors. Around this time, Julius Caesar, the guy on all of those pizza boxes, left his home of Rome for Alexandria in the hopes of keeping Egypt on the side for the now inevitable civil wars against his colleague Pompey. 
Egypt was the crazy breadbasket of the Mediterranean and Rome's greatest supplier of grain and other luxury goods. Cover had Egypt on their side would likely prevail, and Caesar, noticing the apparent dynamic shift in Egyptian politics, shacked up with Cleopatra and helped her defeat the forces of Ptolemy XIII, giving her sole rule of Ptolemaic Egypt. During this time, Caesar and Cleopatra had a son and named him Caesarion after his dad. After the battles of Alexandria had subsided, this little Caesar accompanied his mom to Rome, where they stayed with Caesar Sr. and left Egypt to essentially fend for itself. This move was arguably the beginning of the end of the Ptolemaic dynasty, as it perpetuated this idea that Egypt was kind of an inferior client state to Rome. In 44 BC, Caesar was assassinated, setting the stage for a civil war between his adolescent heir Octavian and his former best friend, Mark Antony. Antony at first tried to break this child prodigy, but decided on marrying his sister instead. Octavian and Antony worked out an agreement where Octavian would rule the western half of the Roman Empire and Antony the east. Cleopatra capitalized on this dynamic by beginning an affair with Mark Antony, and they had three children together. Antony developed a genuine affection for Egypt while staying in the country, and even declared in his will that he wanted to be buried in Alexandria rather than Rome. In the autumn of 34 BC, Cleopatra and Antony conducted the Donations of Alexandria which basically saw them slice up the eastern Mediterranean like it was a stuffed crust pepperoni pizza and dividing it out amongst their children instead of traditional Roman governors. Yeah, so naturally Octavian laughed at this and used it as fuel to ignite the pyre that Anthony would create for himself in the months to come. Eventually, the two powers met at Actium, where Octavian handed Anthony a decisive defeat. Anthony and Cleopatra took their own lives in a very Shakespearean manner and established Octavian as a sole ruler of what would become the Roman Empire. Octavian used the prestige of his victory to change the imperial username to the more regal Augustus and made sure Rome was now officially an empire. Yeah, so as much as I hate to say it, the reign of Augustus was a perfect storm for Egyptian governmental overhaul. Roman Egypt was the only province with an equestrian governor, with other provinces being governed by members of the senatorial class. So equestrians didn't have the wealth or the prestige to actually become emperors themselves, so the emperors threw them a bit of a bone in the form of this governorship. Yeah, and along the same lines, the office of Praefectus Aegypti was created to govern this new province. Matters of grain shipment and allocation were shuffled under this big umbrella of the Praefectus Annonae back in Italy. The Egyptians were continually reminded who was boss by the three Roman legions who set up shop in their backyard. The legions were kept there to keep peace, protect the extraction of natural resources like gold, and occasionally host block barbecue parties. After a reign of general prosperity, Augustus died on a trip to Nola, and Tiberius was raised to the purple. Man, would I ever love to go to one of those barbecue parties. Mm -hmm. Tiberius, so Tiberius, who is the, the successor of Augustus, his reign was a lot more problematic compared to the now divine Augustus. Um, so Germanicus, the more popular nephew of his, Tiberius that is, was even killed for entering Egypt without the emperor's explicit permission because it was seen that ruling in Alexandria as a governor was an easy stepping stone to ruling in Rome. Yeah, so after this, the next 15 or so years passed pretty quietly in Egypt until the turbulent year of 69 AD. During this fateful year, the governor of Egypt, Tiberius Alexander, no relation, helped support Vespasian's revolt for the imperial throne. Another period of peace and prosperity followed until the Second Jewish War broke out in 115 AD. Yeah, so during that conflict, Alexander was actually abandoned by the Romans in the face of the Jewish rebels who were led by Lucuas, and large swaths of the city were burned. 
Um, order was soon restored, though, and Egypt was thriving once again during the reign of Hadrian, who took a keen interest in the country. In contrast to many of the kind of Italian homebodies who preceded him, Hadrian visited the province personally and undertook projects to rebuild the Serapeum and construct a city in the honor of his dead lover Antinous, who had died in Egypt, which he named Antinuopolis. And again, on this note, one of Hadrian's main reasons for his visits and patronage to Egypt was the vital role it played in the Roman trade with countries in the Indian Ocean Basin. The Romans utilized port cities on the Red Sea like Maios Hermos and Berenike to conduct trade in spices, silk, and pearls with South Asian states. These overseas trade routes allowed Rome to miss the rage-inducing taxes that the Parthians placed on overland trade. Egypt once again fades from the general central story of Rome until the early 200s AD when Caracalla ordered a great slaughter of the citizenry of Alexandria after they mocked him in a pretty bad theatrical performance. Yeah, just to expand on that, um, when Hadrian went to Egypt and kind of expanded the trade routes, it was mainly with kind of states in, on like the Indian subcontinent, like the Chara dynasty, and also various groups in Sri Lanka. Um, anyway, Egypt fell out, in and out of trouble in the latter half of the 3rd century AD, as it was briefly absorbed into the breakaway Palmyrene Empire, but was then reconquered by Aurelian. Um, it was The province was later an epicenter of tax results led by vagabonds such as Domitianus and Achilleus, which were crushed under the boot of the emperor Diocletian in the 280s AD. Diocletian's administrative reforms spelled the end for Egypt's status as a special and distinct province, the Roman Empire, as it relates to taxes and such. It was split into sub-provinces and included in the diocese of the east, just like any other region. The rise of Constantine about 20 years later saw Christianity really take off in Egypt, ending the predominance of polytheistic religions in the nation once and for all. Cool, yeah. So that's about everything we had to talk about. We hope you guys had fun as we rambled our way through some Egyptian history. Please join us next time as we talk about Christian and Byzantine eras of Egyptian history. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Take care.